John chapter 18. We'll read through 18 and 19, and then we'll uh, take a look at it. Um, one of the things I've been trying to focus on um, for myself and, and also for us as we're together is uh, is uh, a, pa- a patient reading of the text uh, that that uh, to the best of our ability maybe is to slow us down and to um, to consider uh, the text a little a little bit um, so um, okay <clears throat> John chapter 18. Um, beginning in verse 1, uh, it says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he, he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I've told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me. I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain of, and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did, the other, uh, so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. 
One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves didn't go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. <laughs> Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Jesus, <clears throat> Pilate answered, verse 35, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I shouldn't be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? When he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, king of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man! Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that's called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king! 
they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar! Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called of a skull, or called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title, a tittle, and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, for my clothing, they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, for that Shabbat was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, again another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus, 
because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. All right, guys, let's pray, and then we'll back up to the beginning of chapter 18 here and sort of walk through this and make note of a couple of the interesting things uh, as we as we go through it, and then and then I, I just have a couple of considerations for us. Uh, we'll read a couple of the things in the later on in the New Testament. Um, in a second here, in a second. <laughs> That's a joke. In a few minutes, we'll read them. Um, Father, we value lots of things that don't really matter, and they take a lot of. Um, precedence in our lives and consume a lot of mental resources and um, energy and uh, finances. Um, and sometimes it seems like we're such fools because because we're perishing and everything around us is perishing. <laughs> um, uh, but you, you're patient still with us, and and you continue to remind us um, that there there are eternal things that cannot be seen, and that there's a different place to put our emphasis, to point the direction of our hearts. There are other areas that we might spend our lives and our energies that are that are more more helpful for those around us and um, more rewarding in an eternal um, setting. So, Father, as we consider once more, as we um, consider these, uh, these, these final moments, hours here, and the events surrounding them um, related to Jesus' death, his uh, giving up of his life. I suppose the thing that the thread that keeps coming back to me is that I, I need to remember that I'm following Jesus. And so I ought to ask myself what I'm really looking for out of life. What, what am I really looking for in, in the world when Jesus clearly has taught us you, Father, teach us through him um, that uh, your kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't look like the things the world offers. In fact, in many ways, it seems that uh, your kingdom is the reality of what seems to be longed for deep within humanity in all of the different ways that we're searching for peace and unity all around the world eternal life all of those things are are, are characters of your, of your kingdom the one that that might only be embraced entered into because of the finished work of Jesus and his resurrection and yet still we're trying to manufacture it our own energy failing to do so of course uh, Father, I, I pray that you would please send your spirit to work down deeply into us, that we would be more patient and gentle with our spouses. That you'd show us that we can be kind to our children, to our neighbors. 
that we can give up the things that we want to benefit them and to serve our community and, and our, the fellowship of believers and then those beyond this place. Father, I just need you to do in me what only you can because I'm still so selfish. So, Lord, would you change us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 When Jesus had spoken these words, back in John 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron. This is the the final part of uh, what was happening after that Passover dinner. Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Passover dinner around the time of preparation, the day of preparation of the, the Passover. Jesus himself would be crucified on Passover. So they had dinner, and uh, after dinner, Jesus took the bread. He gave it to um, he he gave it to uh, Judas, and uh, he told John because John asked. He t- told John, "Hey, the person that I give this bread to is the one who's going to betray me." And he gives the piece of bread to him. And the Bible says that immediately after the bread entered Judas, that Satan entered Judas. And then Jesus said, "What you do, do quickly." And Judas gets up and he leaves dinner. But then Jesus continues on teaching them. He teaches them about how in John 14, he talks to them about how he was going to prepare a place for them. And he said, if, it, if that wasn't true, I would have told you that it wasn't true. That in his father's house, in, in his dynasty, there are many mansions, many places to live. And that he's preparing a place for them. He encouraged them to endure. He reminded them that they would face suffering and persecution and difficulty as they continued on in their lives until they died and would be brought into that kingdom, okay, in its fullness. Uh, So um, he, he continued to remind them of those things. And then he told them that there was a new commandment he wanted to give to them, one that the world around them would know that they really are his disciples, that they are actually following Jesus. And that new commandment, he said, was that, as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. And he demonstrated that by taking his, uh, his garments off and by wrapping a towel around his waist and serving the disciples by washing their feet. And he said, I've done this as an example for you that you guys should do this to one another. And you ought to love one another as I have loved you. John chapter 17, uh, or John 15 Rather, Jesus reminds the disciples that um, the, the place that they would find the fullness of what he intended for them, the place where they would bear fruit with their lives, fruit that would remain and that would bring glory to God, was the place of just abiding in him. He provided them that simple reality in instruction. So often we try to manufacture fruit and Jesus said it's as simple as abiding in me and having my word abide in you and yet somehow that's the thing that i i don't i don't know that we just don't want to (laughs) do maybe it looks better for us when we try to manufacture it because then it's our energy and not his john 17 jesus prays for the disciples this prayer that's sometimes called the high priestly prayer of jesus and we have this great insight into the communion of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in a way that is remarkable in John 17. And in that text, Jesus prays primarily for one thing for the disciples. And he says, I'm praying this for the people that are hearing me and who believe me, not for the world right now, but I'm praying for the people who trust me that they are one even as you and I are one, Father. Jesus prayed that we would have a 
fellowship, a communion of unity with one another. That we would love and serve and live for each other. Prayed that way in John 17. And I think that he is, in fact, at work doing that very thing in us. God, would you do it in us? <laughs> Please, would you do that? That we would be um, unified, Lord. Then he, after dinner ends, and, and he's finished uh, with those things. Now, uh, he said in, in the earlier chapters, he said, now let us be going. So now they're leaving the city of Jerusalem now. And uh, John describes that for us. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron. That was that valley just on the east side of the city of Jerusalem where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Uh, This is the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives on the other side of the Kidron Valley or the brook Kidron. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. I love the fact, just the simple reality that Jesus often met with his disciples in the garden. (laughs) That's wonderful. And also this incredible reminder of the fulfillment of what he was coming to do, right? To reverse what happened in that first garden. This was the Garden of Gethsemane where he would, he would sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Where he would, he would wrestle uh, with his own body in, in deciding, in, in agreeing with the commitment to give it up, to lay his life down. <clears throat> and it was in a garden... It was in a garden that uh, Adam and Eve rebelled against the Father. It was in the garden that Jesus uh, submitted to the will of the Father. Um, Maybe it's a good thing for us to (laughs) meet in a garden to pray. Judas, who betrayed him, verse 2 says, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Love that (laughs) weapons are mentioned. (laughs) With weapons. Jesus had previously said to make sure that they had a sword with them. I think that he's anticipating what was going to happen the moment that he's arrested, because he knows what's in his disciples. He knows that that, uh, there's going to be... some kind of defense uh, that is mounted for him. And this is something that was to be done in fulfillment of, of uh, Old Testament prophecy as well. Um, sometimes people take that verse out of context where Jesus says, sell, sell what you have and go buy a sword. And then somebody's like, go buy swords. And then Jesus is like, somebody says, hey, we have a sword right here. And Jesus goes, that's enough. Sometimes people take that to mean like, we should always have a gun or something. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a very strange ripped out of context uh, thing but uh, anyways um, Jesus is getting prepared for this um, this moment this confrontation here and what's going to happen and of course what he's going to do in response to it so G- Judas comes with the uh, the officers from the chief priests and Pharisees with tor- lanterns torches and weapons verse 4 says Jesus therefore knowing all things that should that would come upon him went forward my word do you do you just hear that knowing everything that's about to happen he steps forward there's no part of this that was that's something taken from him do you get that there's no part of this that's a surprise there's no part of this that that he wasn't aware of and and that reality is true for everything that you're going through as well and and that's what i I think it's so vital for us to remember in this. 
and in our lives as we march uh, day to day. He is certainly not surprised by us. He wasn't surprised by what was happening here either. He knows what's going to happen to him, and he goes forward. He steps forward into it. knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am, or I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. (laughs) Not not with Jesus and his disciples, with the others. (laughs) Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. (laughs) What was that like? They come out and Jesus steps out from the crowd of the disciples and he says, Whom are you guys looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, they're, they don't know exactly who he is. And the other texts tell us that part of this involves Judas going and, and beginning to kiss Jesus to identify exactly who Jesus was in that group. Jesus steps forward and he says, um, he says, I am, I am he. And it says they drew back and fell to the ground. Another reminder that what's happening here isn't something that, Je- that was out of his control. Then he he asked them again, whom are you seeking? I wonder if there's a little bit of a quiver in their voice this time. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I've told you that I'm he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me. I have lost none. That was something Jesus had said after supper. Um, he said that the one who had betrayed him, the son of perdition, the son of destruction, uh, he obviously was not included in that, but of those whom God had given him, he has lost none. And now he steps forward, separating himself from the group, identifying who he is so that there's no bloodshed, so that the other disciples aren't hurt, exactly in fulfillment of what he said. He's caring for them even in the moment. He's looking out for their protection, even in the moment that he's about to be bound and carried away to be beaten and tortured and, and, then, and then executed. He still is caring for them and their protection. That's so fascinating and gentle. Simon Peter, having a sword, because this is Simon Peter's personality. <laughs> then Simon Peter, uh, having a sword, verse 10 says, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. I love a couple of things about this part. Um, I love the details that are involved. It's written very much as an, an eyewitness account, and later on in the next chapter, we're going to see that John says that. He's like the person who's giving this testimony, I've seen. You know, And, and I'm, I'm writing these things because I want you to believe. Um, he drew the sword and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? It seems like Peter gets one final rebuke there. <laughs> and then there's the silent rebuke that's going to come shortly hereafter, where Jesus had already told him he was going to deny that he even knew him. And uh, and he does. And then the rooster crows. So there's the rooster's rebuke, I suppose I should say, to Peter. Verse 12 continues, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Isn't that funny? 
as Jesus steps forward, they said, he says, who are you seeking? And they say, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, I am he. And then all of them step back and fall down. <laughs> they go backward and they fall down. And they get up again, it seems, and they're like, and Jesus says, now who are you seeking? And, and, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he again. He said, I've told you that I'm he. You know, leave these, leave these guys alone. Now they take him and they, ba- they bind him as if these cords really bound him. God doesn't need our defense. He doesn't need our defenses. That reality helps to settle my heart when I have questions or when I'm confronted with questions about things that are difficult or things that I don't understand. Sometimes I think, well, I've got to defend him. He doesn't need my defense. (laughs) He's God. Sovereign and mighty, good and patient and terrible, awesome, powerful, mighty. They bound him and they led him away. Verse 13 says they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So there was this, uh, uh, at this time in uh, Israel's history, there was this sort of makeshift thing happening with the, with the high priesthood. Torah had said, Moses had said, that the high priest was to be high priest until he died. But this had been exchanged for a more political setup, one that was often uh, bound to the families of those involved and sometimes then also to money and other agreements. Okay? So Annas had served as high priest previously, but before he died, uh, Caiaphas, his uh, son-in-law, takes over. Uh, as high priest, and this is who is high priest at the time of Jesus. And John reminds us of something that this Caiaphas had previously said. And he said it not because he was a great man, but he said this, he prophesied about Jesus because of the position that he held. That's one of the things that I think is so vital to remember is that God works through the positions that he gives people. Even if we look at that person and we say, that's a wicked, evil person. Sometimes we neglect to see that God sometimes still is working through them in ways that we don't understand. When I read through the the prophets and and God's like, I've raised up my anointed Cyrus to do certain things. And you're like, wait a minute, Cyrus was this pagan king. Like what? You know, God's like, I've given him certain authority and power and and he's going to do certain things that I want him to do. And yeah, he does lots of other things too. And we could look at those and say they're horrible, but God is also using them in very particular ways. Okay. Um, So... Um, Caiaphas, this Caiaphas, he was high priest that year. Verse 14 says, Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people, and not that all the people should die, (laughs) but that one man should die for the people. So uh, this is the position that Jesus is going to be fulfilling in the fulfillment of that that prophecy of, of Caiaphas, actually. Verse 15 says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That's the one writing this. (laughs) <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that later it's, it's clever the way that John uh, puts himself in the story there uh, and so did another disciple now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest listen to what's happening this is narrative I want you to picture it in your mind as best you can they're following now uh, Jesus and, and uh, Simon Peter and the other disciple John are following 
Um, and that disciple, that other disciple, John, he was known to the high priest. So he goes with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter is standing at the door outside. Then the other disciple who is known to the high priest, verse 16 continues, who is known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. So now John realizes that Peter's no longer with them. So John's like, oh man, let me go get Peter. So he goes back to the door and he's like, hey, hey, hey lady, this, this guy, let him in, you know. And so Peter comes in, but now do you realize now she's like, wait a minute, is there some connection between like John and this guy? Peter? Because John's getting Peter access to the courtyard of the high priest. And so now this sort of sets up the narrative of what's happening. Uh, Then the servant girl who kept the door, verse 17 says, the servant girl who kept the the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And I love the phrase because it's in the negative. You're not one of his followers, are you? That's so accusatory, isn't it? (laughs) It's so like, (laughs) I I love that. Like, wait a minute. (laughs) And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Now I need you to stop for just a second and consider this. Consider the author. Consider his perspective. He goes to the door. He gets access for Peter into the courtyard. But now it's as if John is standing somewhere else observing Peter because Peter has said, I don't know that guy. I don't know Jesus. I'm not one of his disciples. And now it's as if John is observing Peter. And where does John describe Peter? The servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there for it was cold and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them. Do you get that? Like John is drawing a distinction between himself and Peter here. That Peter is standing with the officers and others crowded around the fire because it's cold. He separated himself from John and maybe any others who were uh, where John was or where Jesus was, maybe, in the courtyard. <clears throat> Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Doctrine is teaching. So uh, he asked him about it. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And often these guys were being told the things that Jesus was was teaching others. And of course, they didn't approve of them. So uh, he didn't answer them directly. He just said, ask the people who who heard me. He wasn't some secret leader trying to stir up rebellion against them. He taught publicly in the synagogues and in the temple. He wasn't trying to, you know, incite sedition or some other thing like that. When he had said these things, verse 22, one of the one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? <laughs> Whew. In other, they get it, right? He, he's asked a very direct question and Jesus sort of avoids the question, avoids answering the question directly. And this makes somebody mad because they're like, how dare he treat the high priest like that? Doesn't he recognize the high priest's authority? Jesus answered him, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? In other words, Jesus' response now is, if I've done something contrary to the law, if I've done something evil, then tell me what the evil thing is that I've done. But if I haven't done anything evil, then why... 
Why are you hitting me? That was contrary to Moses. If he had committed a crime, he could be beaten, according to Moses, right? According to Torah, he could suffer punishment, and that might involve being hit, <laughs> okay? It was a form of punishment that, uh, that was often used. If I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, I want to pause right here for just a second. We're going to get here in maybe three months, um, but... Uh, <laughs> my hope is to get there in about three months. But later on, when the Apostle Paul is arrested, almost the exact same thing happens. Paul responds to the high priest who's at, at the time. Paul didn't even know that he was acting as the high priest at the time, but he responds to him in a way that's sort of confrontational, <laughs> sort of rebukes the high priest. And um, and then he, uh, he's struck, he's hit, um, and uh, and then... In that situation, though, the person says, how dare you revile God's high priest? And Paul's like, whoa, I didn't realize he was the high priest. And then Paul backs down and says, because Moses said, because Torah said not to revile a leader of the people, you know. And so, like, it's fascinating to me because Paul's like, he submits himself to that, which is incredible. Um, another place, uh, Paul says, uh, if I have done anything deserving of death, I don't, uh, I don't um, refuse that punishment. I think that's fascinating too. Paul's like, if I'm guilty of something that deserves death, then kill me. He's willing to, which is, by the way, one of those true signs of, of, um, of repentance, right? Is being at a place where you say, I'm guilty of something and, and I'm willing to accept the punishment for that, uh, for what it is that I'm guilty of. Um, it's a, a wonderful sign of repentance, oftentimes. So, uh, Annas, verse 24, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Um, that was that first confrontation with Annas. Uh, it's very interesting. Do you answer the high priest like that? But Caiaphas was the acting high priest, but now he's in front of Annas. So there's like this weird, remember I told you, there's like this strange hybrid sort of thing happening there. Caiaphas was the actual high priest at the time, according to what their, uh, the tradition and uh law of the land was at the time, but Annas had been the high priest, and so there's sort of this weird conflict happening there. Keep in mind that this first part of Jesus' trial, even before the religious leaders, was illegal. It was against the law for them to have a trial at night, against their own laws, against their own traditions for them to have a trial for someone at night. So the first part of it is really kind of illegitimate. It's not until the next morning that they're able to have a legitimate religious trial, and then they deliver him to Caiaphas, um, or not to Caiaphas, to Pontius Pilate for uh, execution uh, because they have found him to be guilty according to their own uh, standards. So verse 24 uh, says, as we read, Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas. Verse 25, now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off. Oh, you know, that's got to be in like, John apparently is aware of this. John has some sort of relationship with the uh, high priest and his family in a way that isn't fully described here. But John is obviously aware of the reality that one of the people now asking, questioning Peter is somebody who's a relative of Malchus, the person who Peter cut their ear off, you know? And so like, and they're like, wait a minute, weren't you there? You know, did I not see you in the garden with him? Um, Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. I mean, you know there had been there had to be some sort of emphasis on Peter when he takes the sword out and cuts off the Malchus's, Malchus' ear, right? 
And, and then this person who was there at the time in the garden is like, wait a minute, weren't you? Didn't I see you in the garden? And Peter's like, mm-hmm, wasn't me. <laughs> Peter denied again and immediately a rooster crowed. There's so, mu- so much more to that part of the story. We see Jesus glances at Peter in the other gospel writings. We see some other things happen, like Peter looks at Jesus and their eyes meet, and then Peter just collapses. He just breaks down. Um, no doubt in shame because of what he's done because Jesus steps forward. He does all these things to protect them and, and, and he, he's offering his life. He's giving himself up and, and Peter can't even say that he knows him. <laughs> even though previously Peter had said, I'll die with you if I have to die with you. Verse 28 says, and they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. Now it's early morning. Um, <clears throat> but they themselves didn't go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Do you get the, such a, um, <laughs> it's, there's so much irony. It's dripping with irony. They're like, oh no, we can't go into that, that Gentile praetorium because we might become defiled and we can't eat Passover then. Jesus is being betrayed. He's betrayed they're falsely accusing him and delivering him over to be killed, to be murdered. And they're like, no, we don't want to defile ourselves. <laughs> we don't want to defile ourselves. We've got to eat Passover later. <laughs> Do you get the, there's so much irony in that. As there often is irony in keeping to our religious traditions, um, even to the detriment of loving the people around us. And I don't think the world is not insensitive to that. I think it's well known and seen. But they themselves didn't go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. What's a case of avoiding the charges there? Like what? He's like, what's his accusation? What's he guilty of? And their only response to him at this time, their only response is, listen, if he didn't break the law, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Like, what? No, tell him what the charges are if there's actual charges, if he's guilty of something, you know? If he weren't an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. By the way, in that exchange, I sense, maybe I'm wrong, I get the sense that there's some tension there between Pilate and between the religious leaders, those bring him to Jesus, because it's almost like Pilate is bothered by this. Why are you bringing him to me? And they're like, listen, if he hadn't broken the law, we wouldn't have brought him to you. (laughs) Then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Well, it was according to Torah, but it wasn't according to the authority they had from Rome, right? From the governorship over them. They did not have the authority to execute people, even though sometimes they still did and sometimes they tried. Think of the woman caught in the very act of adultery and they're all picking up stones now to stone her, you know. But their statements frequently are so often filled with contradictions because they're defending themselves while laying false accusations against Jesus. Therefore, the Jews said said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. The saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. John's like, the reason why all of this had to happen was so that Jesus could be lifted up just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness because that's how Jesus said he had to die. Had to be lifted up from the earth 
and the place that happened is on the cross. As his body was physically lifted off of the earth, hanging on a tree. And keep in mind also that Torah, that the law said, cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree. And in the New Testament, Paul picks up that reality in reminding us that Jesus became a curse for us. Because the law said, cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree. He took the curse from the very beginning, the curse given to humanity in, in Genesis chapter 3. He takes that curse from us. <clears throat> well, um, continuing on in the text, um, John reminds us that Jesus said this, signifying by what death he would die. Verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Pilate is so like trying to be unconcerned. Pilate is like, are you kidding me? Remember, Pilate doesn't know who this is. Pilate doesn't know, know, really know anything about Jesus necessarily, right? He's just some Jewish guy that was brought by his, his, the people that he's supposed to be in charge of. Some of the other uh, historical records document for us that there had been other uprisings under Pontius Pilate and the Roman authorities at the time had given some sort of instruction that if there were other issues that Pilate had, that he could be removed from his governorship. And so Pilate's trying to just quell whatever's happening here because he doesn't want there to be more problems with the Jews. They had been seen as a rebellious people under Rome's authority already. Okay? Now, um, Pilate is just trying to settle the issue here. Uh, so Jesus said, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate's response in verse 35, as we began to read, said, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Remember, they, uh, he was accused of, of being the king of the Jews um, and of saying that about himself. And now Pilate is like your own nation. Your people have delivered you to me. Like, what do you, why are you asking me about this? Um, by the way, though, I can't help but move beyond the reality that somehow, even in this moment, Jesus is still even concerned about Pilate. He's like, Pilate, what do you think? That's so personable. It's so personal. Even after all of these things, after all of the betrayal and, and, and the arrests and being carried away and the, the mock trial at night and then the religious trial in the morning, now he's delivered to Pontius Pilate and somehow Jesus is still concerned about the person standing right in front of him. And if there's not one lesson for us about what it means to love your neighbor, it ought to be that. There's so many things that cloud our mind and our attention that, that happen to us and around us but Jesus is still, he's right in that moment. In that moment, he seems to be concerned about the one right in front of him. And he says to, to Pilate, are you saying this? Or somebody just tell you this about me? Why are you asking me this? And I hear in that concern even for Pilate. And Pilate is so flippant. He's like, what are you, what? Am I a Jew? What are you, I don't care. <laughs> Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, verse 36 says, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Um, by the way, it's one, this verse right here is one of the reasons why I think it's strange how sometimes people talk about wanting to like 
uh, sort of kingdom now theology and trying to make Jesus kingdom here because a place where we lovingly surrender our rights to everything where we in where we have all things in common as the, we see happening in the early church this place has to be one entered into voluntarily otherwise the only way to do it is to take things from everyone by force is to use the sword <clears throat> and of course that's something that happens often around the world the sword is used um, even sometimes in efforts to do good things for people the sword is used in efforts to pursue oh well you won't share with your neighbor well then we'll just take from you and force you to share with your neighbor but the reality is that it ought to be voluntary we ought to be loving our neighbor as ourselves and it's a whole different thing but that kind of community is one entered into voluntarily and I think it's what the church is supposed to look like <clears throat> my kingdom is not of this world he said if my kingdom were of this world my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews but now my kingdom but now my kingdom is not from here Jesus, Jesus had told them that he would be returning the prophecies given about the return of Jesus are in fact catastrophic to an unbelieving world it is in fact through the sword in <laughs> um, all those who've rebelled but it's Jesus who does all of those things it's Jesus who handles that, not me. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Oh, sorry, skipped a little bit there. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. He is the king of truth. Everyone who's of the truth the truth, definite article truth, the truth, not a truth, not some truth, not my truth, but the truth, the absolute reality, the objective reality of what is true. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Once more, Jesus settles the score about what it means to hear him and know him and to walk with him and what it means for a world that won't hear him. Pilate said to him, as the world says even today, what is truth? When he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. After this exchange with Pilate, Pilate's like, I don't see any reason to kill him. I there's nothing wrong with him. It, that would demand him of being executed. But, verse 39, you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. And as I pointed out to you in our previous uh, um, studies through the Gospels, Baraba is the Hebrew word for son of the father. So, so this guy's name is literally son of the father, <laughs> who's the robber. He, he had been arrested uh, for sedition and for murder. Um, now Barabbas was a robber, the text says. Verse 19, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. You got to see in, in chapter 19, what we're going to see is that it's almost like Pont that, that uh, Pilate is trying to let Jesus go. He's trying to show them, hey, he suffered enough. Let's just let him go, you know. 
Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head because he's a king, right? And kings wear crowns. But his crown was made out of thorns. I, I just... Do you remember part of the curse? Do you remember the curse given to Adam about the sweat of his brow and that the, um, the plants would grow thorns now? That it would be hard, that, that he'd labor and work in difficulty. And now the very part of the curse that was commanded in Genesis is now taken and shoved into the head of Jesus. There's so much here about God doing the very thing that he promised, the fulfillment of what was promised back in Genesis chapter 3, of God's redemption, of God's reversing what had been caused by humanity's rebellion to him. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe because scarlet or purple was the color of of kings. It was a very expensive uh, type of dye to get and to use. And so it was often used for for kings and for those in, in power and authority. They put on him this purple or scarlet robe. And then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. And in the other gospel writings, we find that this was a game to them. They would strike him. they put a blindfold on him. And they would strike him. And they would say, Hey, you're a prophet. Tell us which one struck you. You know, It was a game that they were playing with him. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Do you see what Pilate's doing? He scourged him. He's caused him to suffer now. He, he's allowed the stuff with the crown of thorns, the purple robe for the others, the officers to uh, strike him with their hands. And now he brings them back out. And he's like, look, I'm, I'm bringing him out to you again so that you guys know that, that I haven't found him guilty of anything deserving of death. Um, <clears throat> well, Continuing, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Do you see that Pilate's like constantly trying to sort of put this on them? Like, uh, also, I want to mention this to you really quickly. In chapter 19, verse 1, this statement says, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. I want you to remember that sometimes we do that 40 stripes minus one thing, but I want you to remember that's a Hebrew form of punishment. It's Pilate who's scourging Jesus. So sometimes we, we say that Jesus was beaten with 40 stripes minus one, but it's just actually not something in the text. It doesn't say anything about that. It just says that he was scourged. A Roman scourging could have involved, obviously we don't know for sure about Jesus scourging, but it could have involved a type of whip known as a cat of nine tails, but we don't know any of that for for sure. Those are all assumptions that have been made over the years. Um, Whether or not it involved that really is irrelevant to the story. The point here is that he suffered immensely at the hands of Pilate, but Pilate is doing this almost in an attempt to say, all right, I'll just beat him, maybe I can let him go after, after he suffers a little bit. Um, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God and they knew exactly what that type of claim meant. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid to say the phrase like starfire. (laughs) He was the more afraid. 
and uh, he went, sorry, Starfire is Teen Titan, anyways. Um, <laughs> Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. This becomes an illustration that Peter uses later on in his life when he talks to the Christians about what it means when he teaches us about suffering faithfully, about being led as a lamb to the slaughter, about humbling ourselves, about not defending ourselves and trying to fight back against all the accusations that might be leveled against us, but enduring difficulty and trouble, reminding us that Jesus did this very thing. When Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And he went again to the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Verse 10, then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, and please make sure that you're listening to this because this applies to you too. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Neither can the people around you or above you, whether they are in our government or, or your bosses or whoever. It is God who establishes and it is God who ordains all authority. And it's so important that we embrace that reality because then it puts us in a place of saying, I can submit to that authority and trust that God will deal with it. Keep in mind that often that authority is abused and misused and, and, and taken advantage of. And, but please remember that God will deal with it. You could have no power at all against me unless I've been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Also, what does it mean to have greater sin? Right? Because I've even heard the question, even recently, I remember somebody saying, uh, you know, what's the weight of sin? Is, is sin weighted? Does, does, is there greater sin or lesser sin? Or is all sin equal? And certainly in judgment, all sin is equal in the sense that, uh, that any one sin, if we could say it that way, unfortunately we're conceived in sin, but any sin uh, would be enough sin to damn us, right? To condemn us. But Jesus taught that there would be varying degrees of blessing in his kingdom. And in, in contrast to that, he taught, not in contrast, but um, on the opposite side of that, Jesus taught that there would be varying degrees of punishment for those who've rejected him. Jesus here says flatly that the person who did, the people who delivered Jesus to Pilate, because Pilate had the authority he had from God, sure. But the people who delivered Jesus to Pilate had the greater sin than Pilate did. They were so much more involved in what was happening here in this moment. From then on, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him. But Jesus, uh, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Oh, they knew exactly how to get to Pilate, didn't they? You're not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. They knew this would rile up the Roman governor. <laughs> when Pilate therefore heard that saying, but uh, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement. But in Hebrew, the, that word, the pavement, is Gabbatha. Now, it was the, pre the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar! Can you even imagine the Jews shouting that? Un believable. It was God who intended for himself to be their king under a theocracy originally. But they had rebelled against him and said, we want a king like all the other nations. And this broke Samuel's heart. And God said, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me from leading, from, from ruling over them. 
And so God said, here are the consequences of their request for a king. They wanted a king. God gave them a king. And then God established the dynasty, eventually the dynasty of King David under the second king of Israel. Lots of other events obviously have unfolded since then in that story. Can you even imagine them saying, we don't have any king except Caesar, except Kaiser? Unbelievable. (laughs) Unbelievable. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. I might get in trouble for this one. Can't help but hear in some of the religious contexts, the groups that have been saying, we have no president but Trump. And it's horrifying. (laughs) Just as it was for them to say, we have no king but Caesar. No, no, no. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our king. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a tittle and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That's so incredibly appropriate and it's fascinating. I'm just going to mention something to you about that statement. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. It was a metropolitan area where people passed by. People from all over the place passed by going through that area and all of them could read it. It was written in in all three of those languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. In Hebrew, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, um, there's some incredible things related to that. That phrase, though, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, if it's written in Hebrew, each of those words starts with uh, Y-H-V-H. yod he vav he which are the four letters that make up the name. The name of God. But that's how you would write Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. Fascinatingly enough. But regardless, this made them frustrated and angry. The Jews there. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews, verse 21, said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, I don't care. (laughs) Pilate's like, what I have written, I have written. Just like, I mean, this is like Roman authority at its best, right? (laughs) He's just like, you guys, you can't do anything about it. (laughs) Like... (laughs) What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. The reason why this is brought up is because John's reminding us of a prophecy that needed to be fulfilled. They divided up the different parts of his clothes. They made four parts with them, but the tunic was different. They couldn't give each of them an equal part of the tunic. They couldn't divide it up into four parts. So the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. It must have been wonderful, right? But uh, they took this, verse 24, they said therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. This was their thing. Let's not tear this into four pieces, but instead let's, let's roll the dice. That's what casting lots is. Let's draw straws. Let's roll the dice uh, to see who gets this tunic. And John's like, the reason why that had to happen is because of one of David's prophecies in Psalms. 
And it's so pointed that John brings this out. Because he's like, they could divide the other clothes up, but not the tunic. And it was because the tunic was this special tunic woven, w- woven as one piece that they didn't want to tear it. And that's the whole reason why they decided to cast lots. But the casting of the lots for his garments, that's something that David said was going to happen about Messiah. <clears throat> um, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's um, uh, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. Also, I like both of them. They divided my garments. That's the first thing. And then for his clothing they cast lots. Both of those things happened. They divided them, but this tunic they didn't divide. They cast lots for it. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. I just want to remind you that whatever God says is true is true, guys, and, and you should be reading your Bible. And I don't know how else to tell you that, except to just tell you. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. There's lots of people named Mary. <laughs> There's lots of Marys. Mary! <laughs> like, everybody turns around. There's lots of Marys. It's a very common name. Uh, just like Je- Jesus was a common name, Judas was a pretty common name as well. Anyways, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. This is a very intimate moment there at the cross where um, Jesus establishes this um, sort of new family that John is now going to be responsible for taking care of Jesus' mother. This implies probably that Joseph has been dead or is dead or has been dead at some point uh, that we don't know that's not part of what's recorded for us. Um, But uh, John now has the responsibility of the son, of the eldest son, if you would, of taking care of Mary um, in this context. And this is another thing that sort of foreshadows the care that we're to have for one another in the church, that we are to care for orphans and care for widows and for each other in whatever circumstance we're in and provide for each other and serve each other and do whatever we need to for each other because the world is a hot mess. But we don't have to live like that. Oh, but I need Jesus to change me. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And there have been myriads of sermons uh, uh, preached on that uh, Greek word, te telestai, and it's um, the, the sort of implications behind it and all of that. That's fine, but keep in mind that Jesus was probably speaking Aramaic when he was on the cross, so he wouldn't have said that word. That's just because it was written in Greek that, that we have that word <laughs> given to us. But um, he was most likely speaking in Aramaic, as, as was the common language at the time, but... Uh, he, he said, it is finished. This is the word that John chooses to use, the Greek word tetelestai that John uses in the records for us. And it's a word that would be stamped on like scrolls of debts once the debt was paid, right? They would stamp this on it so that if somebody said, you still owe me this debt, then you could show that it had been stamped tetelestai. It had been stamped that it was paid in full, that it was, it was finished. It was done. From that hour, that disciple, <laughs> what? <laughs> and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. <laughs> Sorry, (laughs) like jumping back there. 
And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Verse 31, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on Shabbat, for that Shabbat was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Remember I described for you before that the way that people typically died on the cross when they were hanging on a cross was asphyxiation. The way you would typically die was by being unable to breathe. You would suffocate. Because over time, as you hung, your body would get weak, and you would be hanging down so far on your chest that you wouldn't be able to pull yourself up to take a breath anymore and you would suffocate to death. Now, with your feet being nailed to the cross, you could push up some, and some have suggested there may have been a little platform there. Um, There are varying ways that could happen, but you might push up some. There are records that seem to indicate that people could have been hanging on crosses for a week or two weeks at a time before they died, until their bodies eventually gave out because they no longer had the strength to push themselves up any longer to take a breath again. Jesus um, dies uh, before that because he gives up his spirit. Right, from that, um, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit, as we read. But they wanted to make sure that they were down off the cross because the next day was a high Shabbat day. Um, uh, there was the Shabbat after Passover. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. And again, John is the whole reason why John's bringing this up is because this is exactly in fulfillment of prophecy. That's why John's reminding us of this. Jesus didn't need his legs broken. He gave up his spirit, but this was something that had been prophesied already. Um, They didn't break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And I love this part. He who has seen has testified. John's like, I saw this happen and I'm telling you about it. And his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were not; oh, these things were done that the scripture might that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken, from Psalm 34. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, "They shall look on him whom they pierce." That scripture is fascinating because that scripture is from Zechariah, and it talks about Israel's repentance. Zechariah 12. And Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13, 6 says, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? And then he will answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. They shall look on him whom they pierce. Those prophecies in Zechariah are incredible. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day. For the tomb was close. It was nearby. That's the reason why they used the garden tomb. It was uh, Joseph's tomb. Uh, He was able to get access to it. It was nearby. They could get his body down off the cross. And they could put him in the tomb quickly uh, because the the next day was coming. Remember, to the Jews, the day begins when? At nightfall. That's when a day begins, at nightfall. So they had to get him down off the cross and into the tomb before nightfall. Otherwise, they'd be violating Shabbat. They'd be breaking Shabbat by trying to continue the burial process. So they wanted to get that taken care of. His legs didn't need to be broken like the others. 
near him, they needed to break their legs so they could no longer push up to get a breath of air. That way the others who were being crucified with him, they would suffocate and die uh, faster. So, um, I want to read two things to you and then we'll, no, maybe I'll just read one. I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 9. I'll read Hebrews 9 and 10 and then we'll pray and we'll, we'll finish up because it's, it's after the time that I want it to be. So, um, Let's read Hebrews 9 and 10 and then we'll pray. <clears throat> then indeed, even the first covenant, that's the law of Moses, had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the, p- the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part of the high, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest or open while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came, the Messiah came, as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the body, how much more shall the blood of the Messiah, who, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal, eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament or a will, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a will or a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For the Messiah has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to offer had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men once, men to die once, but after this the judgment, so the Messiah was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart for sin from salvation." For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. 
For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you didn't desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus the Messiah once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before... This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his body, and having a priest, a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full confession of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much, more, how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance." You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Father, use your word to change us. Do that work in us that only you can. Lord, may our lives be living sacrifices. 
wholly pleasing you because Jesus endured, endured he, he truly paid all and we are yours now all that we have is yours so do with us what you want I pray in Jesus name Amen. Amen hey guys the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious with you the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you guys peace I love you I want to, you to read Colossians uh, 1, 2, 3 and 4 uh, it's the whole book of Colossians. I just